Happy birthday to my wife, who is in the foyer with our sick baby right now. Hi, honey. Sorry. <laughs> that was not a very good birthday present of me, was it? But she really wanted to be here today, so she's going to wheel around uh, Amelia in her stroller, and nobody touch Amelia unless you want to get sick. My wife is 33, and she looks like 16 still, and I still get comments asking if I'm her father. And uh, so we'll... uh, I just turn to the people and say, hey, I, I got lucky, you know, I, uh, I married up, I married up. Happy birthday, honey. <laughs> We're trying to teach our kids how to uh, apologize, and uh, for those of you that uh, are parents or who have been parents, you know that apologies are very difficult to teach in your children, aren't they? Um, It's often the case that when a child apologizes, uh, they're kind of prompted to apologize by the mother or the father, and they kind of look at the person and just say, sorry, sorry, forgive me please, and then they move on. Of course, no parent is very satisfied by that apology, and so we spend extra time with our children trying to say, now, can, can you look at the person and can you mean it from the heart? And so Bennett, my son, he'll look at Mallory and be like, sorry. <laughs> he'll kind of grab his heart as if he's trying to mean it from the heart. And Mallory, she's so gracious, she looks, oh, it's okay, Bennett, I forgive you. And, and he's like, well, I didn't even really want that as he walks away. We spend day after day after day teaching our kids how to apologize. And why do we do it? Uh, We do it because there's a difference between an apology like my son often gives and a real apology. While my son often will look at the person and be like, sorry, and walk away, uh, we know that that kind of an apology is insufficient. We know it instinctively. We receive that kind of an apology when the person looks at us and says, well, sorry. And we go, wow, that didn't help. That didn't help at all. I'm still hurt. You still haven't made it right. But when that person looks upon us and says, and looks us in the eye and says, you know what? I hurt you. I am so sorry for what I did. Please forgive me. And when they wait and let that other person respond to them and say, okay, I forgive you. Such an apology, we all know, is infinitely better. It is of a deeper and more durable quality. And it allows the person who's been offended to respond back with uh, a measure of grace and a measure of compassion. It helps heal their heart. Apologies matter. And the way we apologize matters, whether it's a superficial one and still causes hurt in the one we've already offended, or whether it's a substantive apology and it actually makes things right. In this, our series on knowing God, uh, we've been talking about two ways, really, of knowing God. There's one way of knowing God that's pretty good, but in the end, it's ultimately insufficient. 
like an apology that just kind of looks at the person and says, sorry, there's one way of knowing God, an intellectual way of knowing God, that's pretty good. You can mouth the right words, you can know the right things about God, but in the end, it's never going to be satisfying, and it's never going to be sufficient. But then there's another kind of knowledge, a spiritual knowledge, a way of knowing God in a deeper, more intimate way that causes us, when we know God in that way, to really begin to see the substantive, spiritual element that comes with such a knowledge. On your outline, the title here of our fourth and final part in the series on knowing God is this, Spiritual Knowledge, Knowing as You Ought to Know. Spiritual Knowledge, Knowing as You Ought to To know. And I put it there at the very top of your outline. To know God is the greatest of all human aspirations. Jesus said in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says the essence of eternal life. What is eternal life? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We have a banner behind me. You'll be justified. You'll be given the gift of everlasting life. You will be born again. You will become a child of God if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You will have eternal life. But what is eternal life? Jesus defines it in John 17, 3. He says this is eternal life. This is the essence of it. This is what it means to have that. It is that you would know God, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. You might say, well, I do know God. I believe in Jesus. I believe and I've read the Bible. I read it every day or every week. I know the stories of the Bible. I know the teachings of the Bible. I know some theology. I've read a lot of books about God and about Jesus, about Christianity, about the church. I know a lot about God. Therefore, I know God. And that's part of it. In fact, all those things that I just mentioned are part of knowing God. In fact, they're critical elements of knowing God. If we are to truly know God, we must believe in His Son Jesus Christ as our Savior. We must read His Word and learn about His commands and His promises and the stories about Him in Scripture. But as J.I. Packer puts it, it's listed on your outline there, this is the first quote we looked at at the start of this series. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. Circle the word about and circle the word of. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. Interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. Because there's a difference. J.I. Packer is noting a difference here. Much like the difference in apologies when one is a superficial one and a quick one and one that anybody can give and an apology that's a substantive one, that's a slow one, that's a thoughtful one, J.I. Packer and others, and throughout Scripture, Paul and others, 
emphasize that there are two, two ways of knowing God. The first, on your outline, knowledge about God is intellectual knowledge. Knowledge about God is intellectual knowledge. Or a philosopher might say it's explicit knowledge or propositional knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that often doesn't take much effort to learn. It's the knowledge that you can read on a piece of paper. It's codified knowledge. It's written down. It can be read and it can be empirically understood. That's intellectual knowledge. And guess what? Anybody can have that knowledge. Anyone. It's accessible to all. It's even accessible to some degree to a non-believer. They can pick up the Bible and learn a lot about the Lord God. They may not know Him in faith, but they can intellectually glean a lot of knowledge about Him. Anybody can learn intellectually about God, propositionally. But in accordance with Packer's quote above, there's a better kind of knowledge. There's a better kind of knowledge than knowledge about God. There's a knowledge that is superior to mere intellectual knowledge. And that is the second kind of knowledge on our outline. Knowledge of God is spiritual knowledge. And again, you might circle about and circle of in those two statements. The first, knowledge about God, is intellectual knowledge. Very accessible, anyone can attain that. But knowledge of God is spiritual knowledge. The closest thing in philosophy to spiritual knowledge is perhaps tacit knowledge. Tacit meaning silent knowledge or unspoken knowledge. But spiritual knowledge of God is knowledge gleaned from simply being in the presence of God. It is a spirit-led experiential kind of knowledge derived from long, substantive meditation upon God, the results of which become more deeply internalized in one's heart and soul, leading to more genuine transformation or sanctification. Let me say that again. and I wrote this down specifically that I could read it in this way. Spiritual knowledge, I'll say it slower. Spiritual knowledge, is not, spiritual knowledge of God is knowledge gleaned from simply being in the presence of God. It is a spirit-led, experiential kind of knowledge. And it is derived from long, substantive meditation upon God. The results of which become more deeply internalized in our heart and soul, leading to genuine transformation or sanctification. There are fewer portions of Scripture that illustrate this more clearly than in 1 Corinthians. I'd like us to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one. And you can turn there to page 605 of your pew Bible. I've listed it on your outline, but I'd like you to see it too. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, page 605 of a pew Bible, or find it in your own uh, New Testament there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 
Chapter 8. We'll also look at chapter 2 momentarily. But first, let me give you a background to chapter 8 as you're turning there. The background is this. It is first century Asia Minor. A city by the name of Corinth. And uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ had just really come to Corinth, not even perhaps a decade prior, maybe two at most. And as the gospel made its way through the city of Corinth in Asia Minor, it was custom uh, in that day and age, uh, as the people went to the store, they were, they were faced with a choice. They would go to the, the meat market to obtain some of their meat. And it was custom in those meat markets uh, for some of the meat to have come from pagan ritual ceremonies. Why, you ask? Well, the pagan priests, they would take an animal and they would slaughter that animal and they would offer the blood of that animal on a pagan altar. And having offered the blood on the altar, the corrupt priest would then seek to uh, make a buck, right? He, he had done this pagan idolatrous ceremony, he had sprinkled the blood on the altar and he still had uh, the, the meat, so to speak, of the animal. And so he would try to make do with it. And he would take it back, this newly slaughtered animal, to the grocery store manager and he would say, hey, do you want to buy this from me? And if, sure enough, the grocery store manager would oblige and, and they would, there would be a transaction and, and the, the grocery store manager would take the newly slaughtered uh, uh, piece of meat and bring it back to the marketplace and put it up for sale. When Christians, I, sh- I should say when Christianity came to the, ta- the city of Corinth and other cities of Asia Minor, many new Christians debated. There were debates on whether or not they should buy and eat meat that had been previously offered to idols and pagan gods. The consensus of the apostles was to remind all believers that the pagan gods and idols of their society were nothing in comparison to the Lord. Therefore, the apostles agreed that such meat could be eaten with a, with a clear conscience. However, the apostles were also equally clear to say that if a Christian, a new Christian in particular, was convicted in their heart and in their mind that eating such a, a piece of meat would offend their own sensibilities and thus offend the Lord, then the apostles encouraged those people to honor their conscience and avoid the meat. So on the one hand, the apostles were saying, it's okay, these these idols, this ritual ceremony, it is nothing in comparison to God. And so you can eat whatever you want with a clear conscience, knowing that it doesn't matter where that meat came from. But on the other hand, the apostles also said, but... If your heart is convicting you and you think that this is just not right for you, that you shouldn't buy something that's come from this, uh, that's derived from this origin, then by all means, don't buy it. By the way, this is a a really good lesson for those, uh, there are many campaigns out there that say, you know, boycott this business, boycott that business, don't buy over here, don't buy over there. Uh, Be careful with those. Because while on the one hand it may be true that a company is corrupt and while it may be true that they're using some of the the portion of their proceeds for corrupt means, 
1 Corinthians 8 is a direct correlation to that kind of a scenario. For some of you, that means you don't buy at a certain business because of what they do with their money. For others of you, it means eat and buy with a clear conscience, knowing that, that the Lord has given you a measure of freedom. And you cannot possibly walk through life on eggshells everywhere. Were we to not uh, do commerce with people who use profits unwisely, we would not do commerce. In time, these two types of Christians collided. Those who touted the apostles' teaching and freely ate all the meat in the marketplace and those Christians who refrained from eating some of those meats that had been sacrificed to idols. Now let's read about the situation in Corinth. And because of the way in which I've arranged this, I am going to read from the outline uh, because I've, I've done this intentionally here. I'm skipping over some of the first portions of this text. Take a look at selections of 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 12. Verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have intellectual knowledge. Let me stop right there. Anything you see in brackets on your outline is something that I've added. I've not added it because the Scriptures need it. I've added it for clarification. I've added it to clarify where Paul's driving with his argument. So let me read it again. Verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have intellectual knowledge. Jump to verse 4. We intellectually know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. However, there is not in everyone that same knowledge for some. For, uh, for some, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But we, we have intellectual knowledge that food does not commend us to God, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have intellectual knowledge, eating food offered in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your intellectual knowledge, shall the weak brother perish? That is, be ruined, be lost, be destroyed? Shall he perish, the one for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Many Christians have, uh, as we've said multiple times in this series, many Christians have a very good intellectual knowledge of their faith. They know a lot about God. They know the Bible, the do's and don'ts. They comprehend basic Christian theology. Yet time and again, those same Christians struggle deeply with sin. They struggle deeply with spiritual growth. There's little growth in them. And they would be hard-pressed to honestly say that they are becoming more like Jesus year after year after year. Why? Why don't Christians grow? Why don't Christians who know a lot about God grow? Why don't Christians who have been Christians a long time, who have learned more now about the Bible, who have learned more of the stories, more of the teachings, who know more of Christian ethics, more of Christian theology, why don't those Christians grow? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, may be cutting to the heart of the issue. 
If all you have is cognitive intellectual knowledge about God, you're missing the boat. You cannot grow in sanctification if that's all you have. Your life will not be transformed if all you do is feed it with intellectual knowledge. In fact, having only intellectual knowledge about God will actually start to harm you. It will cause the weed of pride to spring up in you. It will cause you to think yourself better, smarter than those around you. The libertarian meat-eating Christians thought they were smarter, better than the rest. But what did Paul say they had done in verse 12? He said, by your intellectual knowledge, you are sinning against Christ. You are sinning against Christ by taking this intellectual knowledge that you've learned from the apostles and and touting it, showcasing it, putting it on parade that all might go, wow, look how much he knows. Look afresh at 1 Corinthians 8, this time reading verses 1 through 3. Now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have intellectual knowledge. But such knowledge, he says, puffs up. But love edifies. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. Right there. Right there in verses 1 and 2. Paul just confirmed exactly what we've been talking about now for this past month. We can all have intellectual knowledge. Anyone can get it. But if that's all you have, and if intellectual knowledge about God is all you aspire to, then such knowledge will not only do you no good, it will start to harm you. As you start to rely on it, intellectual knowledge will start to ruin you. It'll puff you up. Your pride will expand as your head expands. Thinking yourself better. Thinking yourself superior. Making a mockery, as they did in 1 Corinthians 8, of those Christians who didn't know that you could eat that meat. Intellectual knowledge is not enough. If anyone thinks he knows, if anyone thinks he knows anything simply by knowing it intellectually, then Paul says such a man knows nothing. He knows nothing as yet. He knows nothing yet as he ought to know. He knows nothing as he ought to know. And what is the way we ought to know? Paul just separated knowledge right there. He just put a wedge, he put a sword straight through knowledge and said, here is one kind of knowledge and here is wholly another kind of knowledge. What is the way that we ought to know? According to verse 2. Paul says that such knowledge that we ought to have must go from the head and make its way down into the heart. It must result in transformation. It must become heart and soul knowledge. 
spiritual knowledge that draws us into a deeper love and intimacy with God. A knowledge that evidences itself in edifying love in accordance with 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Love edifies. It must result, evidence itself, in edifying love to those around us. Tozer writes, this is a fascinating quote, read it slowly on the back of your outline, that God can be known by the soul in tender personal experience while remaining infinitely aloof from the curious eye of reason or the intellect constitutes a paradox best described described as darkness to the intellect but sunshine to the heart. Let me read it again. That God can be known by the soul, by the heart, spiritual knowledge. That God can be known by the soul in tender personal experience while remaining infinitely aloof from the curious eyes of reason, intellect, constitutes a paradox best described, past tense, as darkness to the intellect but sunshine to the heart. That is to say, those who simply use their cognitive ability to know God will not find Him. The path will be dark. But those who use what they've learned in the mind, which is important, what they've used in the intellect, which is important, but have let it filter down into the heart, that is where sunshine will be. That is where light will dawn. That is where transformation will take place. Darkness to the intellect. We might say darkness to the intellect alone, but sunshine to the heart. Packer writes, we must learn to measure ourselves, not by our knowledge about God, but by how we pray, by what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Intellectual knowledge is helpful. But spiritual knowledge, knowledge that touches the heart and soul, is the key to developing intimacy with God. And spiritual knowledge is how God wants you to know Him. You're in 1 Corinthians 8, look at 1 Corinthians 2. Spiritual knowledge is how God wants you to know Him. Anyone can have intellectual knowledge, even the unbeliever, to a degree. But here's a different kind of knowledge, 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in the middle of verse 10. To set up the context just a bit, uh, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians again, this time about what God has given them. Awareness, knowledge of some of the good things and blessings that God is going to do for us in the future. He's speaking really of of some of the heavenly blessings, some of the eternal blessings that we shall have. But in the middle of verse 10, he pivots a bit. And this is what he says, where it says, For the Spirit. He says, For the Spirit searches all things. That is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 12. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There's a lot here. I want to break it down. This is an important text as we finish our, our discussions on knowing God, at least on a Sunday sermon level. We've received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is described in verse 16 as the mind of Christ. We've received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ, and the job of the Holy Spirit is to immerse us in the knowledge of God. That's His job. He is to teach us and to immerse us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. But what kind of knowledge is the Spirit interested in imparting to us? Intellectual knowledge? Yes. That's part of it. But notice where Paul puts emphasis in verse 13. Read it again. Verses 13 and following. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, what He is going to teach us, immerse us in. And what is He going to do? He's going to compare spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Has the Holy Spirit been given to just fill our minds with intellectual knowledge about God? Hardly. He's doing a spiritual work in us. A deep work. A work that transcends nature and the things that can be known by mere empiricism. The world laughs, according to verse 14. The world laughs when we talk about this. It is foolishness to them when a Christian sits quietly meditating on the greatness of God. When a Christian sits quietly letting the Holy Spirit do deep and enduring work. The world can't see what possible benefit such time and energy does in our heart and in our soul. But we know what God is doing in those quiet moments because we have become spiritually discerning people, according to verse 14. And oh, what benefits such quietness before the Spirit do in us. Oh, what benefits such quietness before the Lord God works in us. He helps us see things more clearly. He helps us make righteous judgments and decisions. Verse 14, He who is spiritual judges all things. He helps us see things more clearly. Our judgments are purer. They are cleaner. They are more clear. And He helps to change our heart, which results in transformation. We become more holy, more pure, and soon the world's best effort to defame us, to insult us, 
to call us hypocrites, as they so often like to do to Christians, soon the man or woman who has been sitting with the Holy Spirit, those defamation attempts fall on deaf ears. Because the spiritual man, according to the end of verse 15, is rightly judged by no one. Christians are defamed in public. They're mocked, they're insulted, they're called hypocrites. And I think the reason why the charge sticks is because it's true. I think the reason the charge is sticking today in our society is because it's true and the world knows it's true. They don't see much more than intellectual knowledge from us. They don't. The world does not see that we are substantively that different from them. And so when a person, when an unbeliever looks upon a Christian, or when an unbelieving family looks upon a Christian family, they go, what's that different? I don't see much change. And it is because that Christian or that Christian family has spent a lot of time going to church, reading the Bible, reading a lot of the Bible, many chapters of the Bible, many books of the Bible. But at the end of the day, all they have is intellectual knowledge. It's not been appropriated down into the heart. It's not caused life transformation. And that unbelieving person or unbelieving family cannot look upon those Christians and say, wow, that's different. What does he have? Where does she get that? I've never seen a person talk like that. I've never seen a person claim to have a relationship with God like that. But if we had that knowledge, that spiritual knowledge, that only comes by sitting quietly before the Holy Spirit, letting Him do His work in us, if we had that knowledge, then we would be rightly judged by no one. And the claims in the world that Christians are hypocrites and the attempts to defame us, many would look upon those attempts and go, you know, actually that's not true. I do see something different about this person. I do see something different about this family. They don't just talk about God. They, they know Him. I don't know how they know Him, but they know Him. But we know how we know Him. God is a person and can be known in increasing degrees of intimate acquaintance as we prepare our hearts for the wonder. I think the reason that we have not pursued Him enough is because we don't expect that there will be a substantive difference in us. I can assure you there will be if you would just pivot from mere intellectual knowledge and add to it spiritual knowledge that comes only by sitting quietly 
meditating with the Holy Spirit's help upon the greatness and majesty of God. Some closing thoughts. These are simple thoughts. They are not profound. But I think they, uh, they leave us in a, a direction we can walk. Many read a lot of the Word, supposing more chapters uh, read will result in spiritual growth. Many read a lot of the Word, supposing more chapters read results in spiritual growth. I'm here to say, try reading less and meditating more on what you read. Try reading less and meditating more on what you, let, uh, on what you read. Give time for the Spirit to use the Word in you, remembering that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change us. Not because we've read five chapters today, but because we may have read one verse, one verse, and actually appropriated it into our very being. Ask the Spirit, number two, to teach you. Ask for the teaching of the Spirit. That's His job. And the one who asks in faith will receive. James speaks of wisdom there, but it it applies as well to the ministry of the Spirit. Ask, seek, knock, and it will be found. Ask the Holy Spirit as you take time to having read the Word and then having sat quietly before the Lord. Ask the Spirit, would you teach me now more of what I just read? Would you let me... Let this sink down deep in me, God. And just sit quietly before Him and and think about it. Meditate upon it. Third, in addition to the Word, devote time to other spiritual disciplines. Very practical suggestions here. Prayer, silence, fasting. Whatever you do, do it with an open heart. Asking the Spirit to intentionally guide your time with the Lord. Let Him lead. Be willing to go where He takes you. Um... It, can be, it really can be as simple as just, just doing what the Word says. Um, we, uh, you, know, you read a verse and uh, you, you put it up in the mind, but nothing happens until it gets into the heart until you actually act upon it, right? And so uh, in parts of his book, Packer and Tozer and others would write, do what, the, do what you just read. Do what you just read in the Word. Read it. Meditate on it. Ask God to teach you more about it. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you're lacking in it. And then ask Him, how can I implement this today, right now, as I walk away from this time of meditation? How can I walk into the world now and implement what I just read? How can I do it right now? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a kind of knowledge out there that um, we all have. Coast Bible Church has. I have. Um, it's, it's an intellectual knowledge. And we've, I think we've had it for uh, all of our life as a church family. Um, but there's a spiritual knowledge that uh, I think sometimes we've missed. Not always. Sometimes we've missed. I know I've missed it. And I think some of you have too. The knowledge of God is the essence of eternal life. We talk a lot about eternal life at Coast. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But what is eternal life? It is to know God and Jesus Christ whom the Father has sent. That's what you will be doing for eternity. I want you and I to practice that now. Not an intellectual knowledge, a spiritual knowledge. Deeper knowledge. Knowledge that truly transforms an individual and causes others to look at them and say, I've never seen that in a Christian. It's rare. It can be found. The Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 2.12, is freely just saying, here it is. It's waiting. It's ready for you. Are, you. are you willing to go after this kind of knowledge? Or are you going to be content to just know a lot about Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these things have been freely given. Another gift that you have lavished upon us, your people. You've given us a great many gifts, Lord. Yet this one is one that uh, we just don't often seem to open. It's much easier, God, to be able to take a test and to be able to answer with 100% perfection many, many things about you. We might even be able to answer 100 questions about you flawlessly, Lord, and about your word. But that doesn't mean we know you. It's a part of it, but we want to go deeper. Holy Spirit, we know what your role is in our hearts. It is to take us deeper. It is to freely give to us and bestow upon us and immerse us in the knowledge of God. So we stand now with open hearts calling upon you to do your work in us and we will open our hearts and receive it. We will commit to sitting quietly before you, reading less, meditating more on what we read, seeking more life transformation than just knowledge to fill our head. And in so doing, Lord, would you deepen our relationship with you? Would you cause great change in us that others might see it and go, how did, you, how did you get to this point in your life with God? But let us not do it for others. Let us do it for ourselves, knowing that we're going to be engaging in the knowledge of God through all eternity. Let us do it for our own soul and for the blessing of the church and let it trickle out into the knowledge of the glory of God throughout the whole world. For that is what will be throughout this world on the last day. So we're going to begin that journey now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.